I think we're going to change it up just a little bit tonight, and I'm going to pray before we read our chapter, um, because I feel like I need it. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had a day. My morning was awesome, but after the morning, everything just seemed to go crazy. I couldn't seem to get my feet under me. I couldn't seem to have the time to do what I needed to do to get ready for tonight, and I felt very frazzled coming in. And then I get in and I'm reading through my notes and I see things that I've left out and things I put in the wrong place. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And then Sandy and Shaney and Aisha prayed for me, which is exactly what I needed and what I needed to hear the exact words they prayed. So I don't know if anybody else had a day like that. (sighs) But if so, I just want to pray for you that our minds are settled because God has something for us tonight. And it doesn't matter if I'm not as prepared as I would like to be. It doesn't. And it doesn't matter that I want to cry right now. <laughs> I'm just going. <laughs> that's, why, that's why she's my boo. <laughs> Um, so I'm just going to pray so that we all, myself included, get what God has for us tonight because he has something. These two chapters are amazing, amazing. And this book, you all, this book's been tougher this second time. When we did Ruth together, I had, this was my fifth time going through Ruth with a group. This is only my second time in Esther. I don't know if I've told you that, but man, there's a lot more in here than I saw the first time. And um, there's some tough stuff. And um, I just want to honor God in how this is presented to you all because I take this very seriously. Um, And if you are hearing these chapters for the first time in depth this week, I want you to hear him correctly, and I want everything I say to give him glory. Um, So let me pray, then we'll start. Oh, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name, and God, I just thank you for who you are, that you are our strength and our comfort. Lord, you never leave us. You never forsake us. Father, I just offer this night to you, and I thank you for it. I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for these women who are taking time out of busy lives to come to hear from you. What a special thing. So, Lord, I pray that you speak to them tonight. Through your word, Lord, and through me, Father, put a guard over my mouth so that everything that I say bring you glory and honor, Father, We thank you for this book. Lord, I thank you for the lessons you have for us in this book. I thank you for the examples of the people who went before us. Father, may we grasp the things in their lives that we should emulate. Lord, may we be cautioned by others in your word who we know went down wrong paths, Lord. Both. 
So as we open your word tonight, Lord, I thank you for eyes to see. I thank you for ears to hear and hearts to receive whatever it is that you have. And then, Lord, ultimately, as we receive your word, help us to be doers as well. Not just hearers, Lord, not just learning for knowledge's sake, but Lord, we want to know your word so we appropriately and correctly apply it in our lives to do whatever you have called us to do with our time that we have on this earth. I thank you and I praise you for that in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. So we are on chapter 5. We're actually going to do chapter 5 and 6 tonight. Um, we have three weeks left. I can't believe we only have three weeks left. So we've got to hit two chapters a night from here on out. But I think that actually works out well because we're going to see the pace of the story very much quickens and the pace of our study is just going to have to quicken to go along with it. So... Either open your Bibles or your notes as I read chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared, and as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is... If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to a feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to a feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. 
Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Mm. Y'all, these next three chapters, we are going to see the climax of this story. A story, you all, that has taken centuries to come together. If we take the genealogies, centuries to get everything in perfect place for what is about to happen. Um, Daniel 4.25 says, The Most High God rules in the kingdom of men. You all, King Ahasuerus might think, (laughs) he might think he's ruling all things, and Haman might think he's calling all the shots, but we are going to see they are definitely not. It is God at work in every single detail of what is about to unfold. So it starts, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in the front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on the royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. A lot of details here, you all. Again, it starts on the third day. This should just hit you every single time you hear a three or a third day or any other form of that word. And I've got some other instances here for you. And if you weren't with us in Ruth, I want to show you why the first mention of the third day is so important. And I know you heard it if you were with us in Ruth, but there's a few new people in here. So the first time that we see the third day is obviously in the creation story. The first three days of creation. And we saw that in day one, God made the light. He saw it and he said, it is good. You all, the second day he created, obviously everything he created was good, but those words were not said on day two of creation. On the third day, he says it twice. In our Bibles, it's in verse 10 and in verse 12. It is good. It is good. Because of that, this third day is known as the day of double blessing. The day of double blessing. And um, when you look through this list, you all, again, amazing things happen on the third day. Old Testament and New Testament. Um, We know that it was on the third day, you all, that Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw a place far off. For three days, for three days, he was walking with his son with his death sentence. And it was on the third day that God brought the sacrifice, that he did not sacrifice his son Isaac. The third day, they make it to the mount, and he provides a sacrifice. Um, We know on the third day is when God came down off Mount Sinai. Um, In Ezra, we see it's on the third day in the month of Adar, um, the sixth year of Darius the king where the house was finished. Um, In Hosea, it says, after two days, he will revive us. 
on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. And you all, all of these Old Testament scriptures about the third day are, of course, leading to the ultimate third day. You all, the most important day in all of history when Jesus came out of the tomb. He was risen on the third day. And there's several verses there that you can read on your own in Matthew and Luke. Um, An interesting one that I don't think we talked about before, John 2, 1 through 3, says, On the third day there was a marriage in Canaan of Galilee. Y'all, this is going to be the time of Jesus' first miracle on the third day. It happened in a wedding And lots of times, you all, Jewish weddings happen on Tuesdays, the third day, because they consider it a day of double blessing. So So it says, Esther put on her royal robes. We talked a lot about clothing last time. You all, we see now, after three days of fasting, wearing morning attire, she now wears apparel that is appropriate for the anticipated event. There is clothing that is appropriate and that is inappropriate, okay? Again, I, I know I brought this last week. The only reason I brought it again was because somebody spoke to me afterwards and they said they were a little nervous about reading it, that maybe it might be um, all about the law, and they come from a church where everything is about the law, and this is what you wear, and and I, I totally understand that, so I'm so glad she came to me. What I would like to tell you is this is one of the most balanced books I've ever read on all of these subjects, including dress, including dress. She, she is not about, you don't wear makeup and you wear a jean skirt down to your ankles and you never do anything with your hair or anything like that. You all, we know God, God created beauty. Beauty is important to him. He made us, I believe, women, even more than men, to love and appreciate beauty. There is nothing wrong with that, you all. And sometimes being slovenly in our dress, not caring, can actually show, number one, we don't care about ourselves, okay, this temple that God gave us. It can also actually show disrespect to others. Have you ever seen a time where someone was dressed in a way at a situation and, and without saying a word, someone looked like they were being dishonoring simply because of what they choose to wear or how they chose to look. You all, that, however that sounds, it is truth <laughs> because God, God put that into place that we communicate not just with words. We communicate in a lot of ways. God designed communication that way. And we can communicate with our clothing, okay? We, we, can, hmm, we can communicate modesty and um, immodesty. We can commu- communicate submission and rebellion. We can communicate a lot of things. So she is communicating 
by what she is choosing to wear here that she knows what she's about to do is extremely important. The whole fate of the Jewish people is going to rest on what happens in the next couple minutes. And she makes sure she is dressed for the occasion. So, a couple things in just Persian dress that I found interesting, and there's a little picture there for you. But very similar to today, men and women had a lot of the same garments that they wore, just like us. We all wear pants. We all wear shirts. They were just cut differently, different lengths, different shapes, but the same pieces, okay? So, we see everybody wore loincloths. They were just the typical undergarments. The shavar were baggy trousers gathered tightly at the ankles. Um, then you have the jama, which was robe-like tunics gathered with belts. And those belts were called karmerbonds, where we get the English word cummerbunds. So just wide belts to gather all the material. They wore sarbands, which were headdresses. And then the preferred metal at this time in this empire would have been gold for their jewelry. So, we see that she's standing in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on the royal throne inside the throne room. So, we're giving her attire. Now, we're seeing her position, where she's going. So, she dresses appropriately and then approaches the king. Does this sound like anything? Y'all, I suggest that this is how we are to approach our king. We are to be dressed appropriately. Y'all, we are to be clothed in Christ. Y'all, that's what allows us to come to him. Hmm. We are clothed in his righteousness. His righteousness. Um... We see King Ahasuerus on his throne, again, thinking he's ruling this empire, you all. We approach the God who truly is controlling all empires. She shows boldness in approaching the king, though it could have cost her her life, okay? We are told to come boldly into the throne of grace to receive help in time of need. Oh, how wonderful that is. And why can we go boldly? Because we're dressed appropriately. That's the only way we go boldly, you all, because we are clothed in his righteousness. We could not go boldly in and of ourselves. We, we could not. We could not. At the same time that she went boldly, She also had some trepidation, of course. We saw that last chapter. And you all, we should as well. We need appropriate fear of the Lord. Okay? It says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. That's what Esther had to feel, fear. He could kill her body. You all, we are, our king can kill the body as well as the soul. You all, we are to have appropriate fear of him 
And ladies, if we fear him, we have nothing else to fear. Nothing else in this world to fear. No man, no circumstance, nothing else because he rules all those things. And when we respect him, see him as he is king of the universe, in charge of everything, ruling over all, overruling all, if we fear him, nothing else to fear. Um, Verse 2. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. So this word here, saw, is interesting. And I started, you're going to see a change this week. I did something a little different. I put in the Hebrew, I put in the actual numerical number for that word so that you can look it up if you want to. I wish I would have been doing that all along, um, but I'm going to start here so that you can find it easier. So this is um, the Hebrew word, and it is ra'ah. It has numerous applications, you all, and implications, both direct and implied, but it doesn't mean just to see, like I, I see the flags back there, okay? It means to look intently okay he is gazing beholding he didn't just he's not just glancing at her oh he sees her come in something makes him look at her differently okay maybe it again maybe it's her dress maybe it's the sheer boldness to come without being asked but something stops him, and he gazes at her, and she wins his favor. That's another word that I found interesting, and I was looking into this word, and you all, I want to say this again, and I, I am in no way a Greek scholar, or certainly not a Hebrew scholar. Some of this is really tricky, I've just got a lot of tools that I use and a lot of different ways I look into things. Um, So I want to give you what I found and whether this is the actual implication of this word, I can't say for sure, but I, I found it fascinating because this word one here is, again, I have the Hebrew number for you, is nasa. And it means to obtain, but it means to get or acquire through effort. Okay? Something's not just given. You had to do something to get it. Okay? So, again, she did something that caused him to give that to her. Okay? And in the Blue Letter Bible... 18 times this word is used in reference to an armor bearer. And this is what I found fascinating because as soon as I read that armor bearer word, it went through my mind, the verse in Psalm 512 that says, O Lord, you are good to the righteous. Surely you surround them with favor as a shield. If anyone needed favor 
to surround them like a shield. It was Esther at this moment, and God gave it to her. And he extends the scepter to her. And in so doing, she has his audience. So I mentioned last week, you all, that of all the kings mentioned in the Bible, and there are so many, the only time a scepter is referenced is with King Ahasuerus. He's the only earthly king that that word is used with him. But it is used numerous times with God and Jesus, okay, talking about the scepter of God or the rod of Jesus, okay? So your first connection, there's several verses here, you all, in Isaiah, Psalms, Hebrews, Numbers, Revelation. Again, you have some Old Testament and some New Testament as well to see about the scepter of God. And I think what you're going to find in these verses, you all, this scepter is a fearful thing to God's enemies. But to us, it is so comforting, so comforting because you want the picture is he's already extended that to us he's already extended it and then Esther and this is one of the things that I just saw that I left out of my notes earlier that last half of that verse you all is Esther approached and touched the tip of his scepter The king offers us life, his life, his righteousness, his everything. But you all, we have got to take it, okay? We have a part to play here. It's not just given. Well, it's given, but we have to take it, okay? Otherwise, every single person in the world would have it, okay? The, the king's offered it, but we have got to accept his offer. And that's what we see here. So verse 3, the king says to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. Wow. So he forgives her breach of etiquette. (laughs) She hasn't been summoned in over a month. Okay. He forgives that. He's so pleased to see her. He not only puts out his scepter, but then he offers to give her whatever she wants, and he doesn't even hear it first. That's this guy. That's this guy, yes. (laughs) So, So, again, you all, I just think that verse is so appropriate in Proverbs 21 that the king... God turns the king's heart in his hands any way he wishes you all, any way he wishes. I believe this is the second time he is doing it here with this king so that Esther can do what she needs to do to bring about God's plan. Another connection, you all, that I'd like for you to work through this week is in Exodus 9, 1 through 35. And this could be a tough one. Um, Here we're going to see the king turning Pharaoh's heart, okay? But it's in a very different way, okay? And and this can be a tough one to work through. So look through that. Read those scriptures, you all. Think about why, why God does this this way. Does it seem 
unfair or fair, unjust, just. Um, think through some of this and then read the verse in Psalms, Samuel, Isaiah, and Proverbs I have for you. I think it might help get your mind around scriptures like this that are hard. Ladies, we cannot avoid hard scriptures. We can't just skim over hard things and say, oh, I don't get it, I don't understand it, I'll just move on to something else. We've got to wrestle with these things, okay? Wrestle with these things. That that doesn't scare God. (laughs) It doesn't, he he wants you to understand this word. He wants you to understand him. And in verses like this, we need full counsel of God. I cannot say that enough. We can't get a correct picture of God through one story or through one scripture. We need this whole thing, okay, so we get the complete picture of who he is and how he operates. So, we don't know, you all, if the king offering this was a true statement. Was it an exaggeration? Was he trying to show off for her, I I don't even know. Um, But we do know that he was aware that she risked her life here and he wanted to do something for her. So, her response. If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. What an interesting request. He just told her, Whatever you want, it is yours. And she says, come to a banquet. Okay, here's another thing we don't know, you all. During this time, during these three times where she was fasting and praying, and remember all the Jews were fasting and praying for her, was this plan totally given to her? You're going to do this, and then you're going to do this, and then you're going to do this, and then he's going to say this, and then you're going to do this, okay? Could be possible. Was the plan given to her, ask him to prepare a banquet and ask him to come? And maybe that's all she got, okay? We, we don't know. We don't know which it was. I'm going to say whatever she got, and then the king said this, I would think it would be very tempting to say, okay, I know you said this, but I'm going with this. He just said whatever I want, so kill Haman and help us, okay? This would have been very, very tempting, okay? Whatever part she was given, whatever she knew, she had just been offered what she thought she wanted. Does that make sense? Okay. God has something more at work than what she just thinks she wants. Okay. So I want to take a couple minutes. I want to dig in a little bit into temptation. Last week we looked into fasting. This week we're going to look into temptation because I think it's very critical that we understand temptation, what it is, how it works. Uh, Because, ladies, as we mature, (laughs) temptation will become more subtle in our lives, okay? When we're new Christians and when we're new believers, sometimes 
big glaring things catch us up, okay, that now we see as just totally blatantly wrong, and maybe those aren't hindrances for us anymore, but that does not mean Satan's not going to stop trying. You all, he is, and he's crafty, okay, and he watches people's responses, he learns from them, and then he might change a little bit, but, but his plans are really the same, okay? They might look like he has a million different ways. He really doesn't. We're going to see he kind of has three. So let's look a little bit at temptation. And I, I don't have this in your notes, so everybody turn to First John, and we're going to read verses 15 and 16. Yes, I'm sorry. First John. Well, I can't even get my fingers to work. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm still not in the right book. Okay, yes. First John two, fifteen and sixteen. Thank you. <clears throat> Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. You all, temptation happens whenever there is something or someone in this world that is more appealing to us. We want more than God. That's pretty easy. That's pretty easy to fall into, you all. Okay? That's why we need to really look deeply at what this means, okay? Because you all, we are in the world, but we're not supposed to be of this world, okay? We have stuff in this world we're supposed to be doing, okay? But we're supposed to be working in this world for our king, okay? We're supposed to hold this world lightly because this world's just a glimpse, just a shadow you all, the eternity, eternity is what we should be looking at. So, looking at temptation, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. So, lust of the flesh, you all, this is a strong or obsessive desire for things that the human body was designed to desire. You all, we have a lot of desires that are God-given, a lot of them. We desire food because we need to eat, okay? We, we can take that down many wrong roads if we allow ourselves. We have a desire for love. Oh, we can do some horrible things to try to get love if we're not careful. We have a desire for sex, 
an awesome desire in the right boundaries is an awesome gift. Outside of that, it is lust. Okay? So lust of the flesh is simply a God-given desire that's getting out of whack. Okay? Lust of the eye is different. It's a sinful desire that results from looking or desiring unlawful things. Okay, the first things we just mentioned, those aren't unlawful things. Food isn't unlawful. Sex isn't unlawful. Love is surely not unlawful. But there are boundaries in all those things. Is everybody understanding this? Lust of the eyes, these are unlawful things. We're not even supposed to be looking at them. Okay? Can we all agree there's things we shouldn't even be looking at? There's things we shouldn't even... There's things we can lust for that are totally unlawful. And then pride of life is anything dealing with sinful or selfish desires that lift up ourselves. Okay? It might be fame. It might be attention, power, control, prestige, people worshiping us, all all sorts of things, okay? So these are the three kind of broad categories that temptation can fall into, okay? So let's look at the first temptation, okay, which is in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. We'll read through this, break it down. In a connection, we're going to do the first one together and the second one you'll do on your own if you choose this week. So the first one is the first temptation. And we see where we pick it up in Genesis 3, 1. This is where Eve is at the tree and we get our first glimpse of Satan. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord had made. So again, we get this first glimpse of him, craftiness, craftiness, makes you think tricking, okay, he is a deceiver. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So now Satan wants Eve to doubt what God has said. He's putting in a doubt about God's word. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That's not what God had said. She adds something to what God had said. It shows she's not sure of what God had said. You all, we need to know this. And it says in Revelation, we are not to add to this and we are not to subtract from this. She just added to the word, okay? But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So now, not only is he trying to get her to doubt, he's directly contradicting the word of God. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. 
So he just appealed you all to her pride. You eat this, you will be like God. That was Satan's fall. That was his temptation. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be God. Okay? So pride of life. She wanting this power, this ability, whatever that God had. Okay? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, okay, so here we see lust of the flesh. It's a food. She's allowed to have food. Y'all, she was allowed to eat anything in the garden. Just one food that she couldn't. This was the only one. This was the only one. So a natural desire gone wrong. Natural desire gone wrong. And not only that, but you all, in this statement, it says, she saw that the tree was good. That is very interesting, you all, because in this, we see she is deciding what is good. God already told Adam and Eve what was good. He already told them what was not good, this tree, okay? She is deciding for herself what is good. You all, that is the very essence of sin, where we decide what is good for us, regardless of what this says. Do not have sex before you're married. Oh, that doesn't apply to me. Oh, it's not going to hurt me. Oh, whatever. Don't do this. Oh, that's not good for me. It might be good for you. It's not good for me. You all... (laughs) That is the essence of sin. Us deciding instead of going what God has told us. He had already told them what was good. He had told them what was not good. And she says, I know you said this wasn't good. I think it's good. And I'm going to take it. So lust, pride of life, lust of the flesh. And then she said she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes. A delight to her eyes. This is lust of the eyes. Something about that fruit looked amazing. Why was she even looking? Why was she even that close to the tree? You all, can we put ourselves in places where temptation is going to be easier? Yes, yes. Sin always looks good at first. It always looks good at first. It's horrible after, okay? So, lust of the eye, something about that fruit was so appealing. It looked so appealing Something which she was told <laughs> to, not, to not eat of, and she went there anyway to look at it. Okay, I think we can learn a lot from what she's doing here. So she saw that it was a de- delight to the eye, and that the tree was to be desired to make her wise again, the pride of life. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
So this was the first sin, the first fall, the first temptation. It encompassed all three things. So this week, at some point, dig into Matthew 4, 1 through 11. You all, this is the temptation of Christ. Okay, he had just fasted for 40 days. He's in the desert. Satan himself comes to tempt him. And I want you to take a note of a couple things as you're reading it. How many times does Satan tempt Christ? Do those three, oh, do those times fit into these categories? <laughs> if so, how would you categorize each of them? Okay, and then... How does Jesus combat him? How does he combat him? And then in terms of application, after you do that, think about ourselves, you all, because Satan hasn't changed. He, I, I do believe he, he knows each of us personally by our choices. He might get smarter with us, but he's using the same tricks. He just has to get craftier with them. Okay, like I said, maybe a little more subtle with the tricks. But think about these temptations. Um, it says in Second Corinthians, you all, we are not to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. Okay, we're supposed to understand them so he doesn't outwit us. So what are some personal areas of temptation that you have? Really think about this, you all. Does it fall in one of these categories? Two? All three, where, where is he trying to get you, okay? And then after you hit those, what can we learn, you all, from Eve's failure and from Jesus' success? We can learn a lot from both, okay? So how can we better handle temptation in our own life through these things? So. Again, we don't know what all Esther knew. Um, I would say her temptation here, you all, would have been to take the easy road. Okay? And that is quite often a temptation that we are given. God gives us a plan. Something else comes along that's a little easier. Okay? And sometimes we can think it's God because it is easier. Oh, God wants everything to be easy. Oh, everything should just go so well and so easy. You all, sometimes the hard way is the right way. Sometimes the easy way is definitely not. We have got to be led by God in these decisions. That's why it's tempting, because it's easy. And I think in your temptation of Jesus, when you read through that, you're going to see that's what Satan was offering him. An easy way out. An easier path than what was ahead for him. And you all, what was ahead for Jesus? A road of suffering. A road of suffering. Did you all know it's okay to suffer sometimes? Yeah. 
suffering handled appropriately can lead to so many wonderful things. We cannot be scared of suffering and we cannot think that because we are suffering that something is wrong. (laughs) I'm not saying it might not be because we can bring suffering into our own lives, you all, through sin, through bad choices, through all sorts of things. But it is not a blanket statement that we are doing something wrong because we're suffering. You all, there are many reasons for suffering. Jesus himself, who we're modeling after, you all, took the road of suffering. So, I believe her temptation here was the easy road. And she's stuck with the plan. Okay? She's taking the hard road that is going to be longer. There's going to be some difficulties that we're going to see. But that's what she did. So, She said, come to a feast today. And the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even up to half my kingdom, it will be fulfilled. So his curiosity is heightened. He wants to know why she risked her life to do this. Um, He asks her for the second time, and she answers using both of his words, both of his phrases, because he asks differently. He says, what is your wish? What is your request? And she answers, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request... Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So, again, you all, now she's asked the second time. I would assume even more temptation, thinking, well, I I didn't do it the first time. Now you're giving me another chance. Maybe I should take it. Okay? So, Again, I I just think we see a strength and a resolve here that is quite amazing. Um, So for an application, you all just think through this. Put yourself in her shoes. Um, Think about what is she's going through when this is offered to her the second time. We don't know, again, how much of this plan she got. All we know is that she positioned herself to hear from God. Through fasting and through prayer, she positioned herself to hear something. And it looks like she heard something and she's sticking with it. Okay? So for application, I would just think you all, is is there any area in your life you feel like you haven't been hearing? Is there something you need an answer for that you haven't gotten? Is there anything we can learn from Esther here and how to position ourselves to better hear? Because, ladies, we need to be in a position to hear because we are hit with a lot every single day, and we need to be hearing from God. We have the Holy Spirit in her. She didn't even have that, you all. She didn't have the Holy Spirit in her. We have the answer here, here. Oh my gosh, we need to position ourselves to listen by reading, 
by memorizing, by learning, by studying, by praying, by worshiping, by all the things, by fasting, all the things he's already told us to do, okay, so that we can hear better. So, we, whatever she knows, you all, we know as the reader that these next 24 hours are going to be crucial in laying out the rest of this story. So, verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. I just remembered whatever day um, several weeks ago when we first met Haman, I skipped that, what his name meant. I know several of you all have that book now because I've seen it. Who, who knows what his name meant? The word Haman means rager. Rager. Wow. <laughs> oh, you all, that is in your notes several weeks ago, but it's written somewhere. He, he is going to live up to his name. Um, so he comes out, you all. He just had a private audience with the king and the queen. The only other person invited was him. You would think he would be on top of the world. Yet as soon as he sees Mordecai, all that is gone. That word but, everything he was just feeling, is now gone. Because Mordecai neither rose nor trembled. Now if you remember earlier, he actually got mad because Mordecai didn't bow or pay homage. It looks like things have been ramped up a bit. Now he doesn't just want him showing him respect. He wants him to fear him. He wants him to fear him. This word tremble, in my King James, this was interesting because your notes are in ESV. I usually read King James as well. In the King James it says he, he was mad because Mordecai neither rose nor moved for him. So when I dug into that, it's the same word, you all, move and tremble, okay? There it is for you, the H2111. It's zua, which means to quiver, quake, or be in terror. You all, it's to be so scared that you move, not just... Well, I just moved anyway. To be so scared, it involves movement, okay? That's what he was wanting. That's what he was wanting from him. So I think we're starting to see a lot about Haman, and I would suggest you all that whatever would have satisfied Haman previously is not enough now, okay? Because Evil is never satisfied. Evil grows. Enough is never enough. And as an application, you all think through other sins. Is this true of all sin? Do sins that we don't take care of grow? All of them? Oh, you all, things like selfishness, arrogance, pride, laziness, 
unrighteous anger, self-pity. We could go on and on and on. Um, do they grow if we don't get rid of them? I, I think we all know the answer. So what, what do we need to do? You all just examine your life. That's what this is for, you all. This is a mirror. That's what this is for, just to see things, not to beat us down, but so we can fix them. So if there's things in our life that we know shouldn't be there, that we're struggling with, let's just take care of them. Let's take care of them. Because the longer we let them go in our life, the harder they are to get rid of. Okay, they don't go away naturally. That's not how this works. We have to, we have to be intentional about getting these things out of our lives. So it says he was filled with wrath. There's an ancient Greek proverb that says, whom the gods would destroy, they first made mad. Sounds like our Bible, Proverbs 16, 18, pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. You all, we can see his downfall coming. He, He is just setting himself up for it. Verse 10, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. So typically I would say to restrain yourself when you're in anger is usually a very good thing. But in this case, you all, he's not really showing self-control. He's just holding it down so he can do something worse later because we know Mordecai isn't enough for him anymore. Remember in chapter 3, We know he wants all the Jews, all the Jews now. So he went home and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. So what's his motivation in gathering people? We're about to see it. He's going to boast and he's going to brag. Okay. So next connection, there's several scriptures there to look into. Just to see what is God's view of boasting and bragging is pretty clear pretty clear. And then once you read through those, see if you can find some more on your own that support that. So verse 11, and Haman recounted to them, meaning his wife and his friends, the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. So this is what he's doing, you all. His rise to power had been quick. um, And now he has his wife, his friends. He's just telling them all the good things about himself and that has happened, that has happened to him. So in this later, you all, we are going to find that he actually has 10 sons. That's going to become important um, typologically. But we know that in this culture, remember, a lot of times wealth was seen in your family, how many children that you had, and he had 10 sons. Um, so Haman says, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to her feast she prepared, and tomorrow I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. 
if we are not careful, little things, little things we choose to focus on, obsess about, you all can keep us seen from a lot, a lot of other things, okay? In this, um, when he says all this is worth nothing, he just talked about his sons. Oh, my gosh, you all. He's there in front of his wife. None of this is anything because he's so mad at one person for not doing what he wants them to do. Y'all, it's very easy (laughs) to see this and think, oh, my gosh, I can't believe people do this. Y'all, these can be things we all fall into. All of us can fall into these things. Um, With Haman, you all, he had unquenchable ambition. He had intense worship of self and a desire for others to worship him. He had a greed that seemed to only grow as he got The more he got, the more he wanted. That's how greed works. And a blinding desire for revenge. We we see that here. He is blinded. Blinded from all the other things he was just boasting about. He was just saying how great they are. And now, oh, they're not worth anything. Because the only thing I don't have is what I really want. That's the only thing worth anything. Okay? So his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So his wife Zeresh, that name means a stranger in want. Hmm. All of his friends What sort of company do you think a man like Haman would keep? Ah, you just wonder. (laughs) You just wonder. But you all, these friends are about to give him some advice that he takes, that he is going to pay for. Okay? It is very important, the company that we keep. So these gallows, you all, when we hear the word gallows in our culture, in our day, we usually think of like a noose. Gallows in this time in the Persian Empire was a stake. Okay, it was for impalement. Okay? And they said, don't miss this detail. Have a gallows 50 cubits high. A cubit is 18 inches. 18 times 50 is 900 inches which is 50 feet. Is that right? 50? 75. Even worse. Look at my notes, not what's coming from memory. (laughs) 75 foot stake. What is the... Obviously, you're going to die on a stake, even if it's this big. What is the purpose of making it that large. <laughs> yes, you all. 
Jeez. And this was, this was not only to torture someone where it was a torturous death. It was also humiliating. It was a humiliating way to die. So not only am I going to make you suffer, not only am I going to torture you, man, I'm going to do it where, my gosh, you would think the whole town could see that. 75 feet. But that pleased him, so he had it made. Proverbs 1, 10 through 19. Why don't you turn there, just in your Bible. And, and as I read this, anything you want to look into later, actually circle it or underline it. If you write in your Bibles, I write in mine. But maybe something you might want to dig into later. I've got a connection for you with this verse. It says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Jeez. Hmm. Last connection in that chapter. You all dig into that verse and chart Haman in it. Look so far at the things he does. Where do you see him in this verse? Because exactly... What this verse says happens to people like this is going to happen to Haman. So, chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Hmm. 
And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over by one of the king's most noble officials. Bet he regrets that statement. <laughs> let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing out that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai. Don't lose that detail. He dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast Esther had prepared. Hmm. So on the night the king couldn't sleep, you all think about this. This was the night of the first banquet. This was the night of the third day. This was the night Haman was home preparing a 75-foot gallows. So what do you think Esther and Mordecai were doing that night? Sleeping, praying. Hmm. The king could not sleep. So every detail, you all, every single detail in here, we see God's sovereign hand orchestrating everything. Why could he not sleep on this one night? Why? The entire course of history of the Jewish people is going to change because a pagan king who doesn't even know God is most likely kept up by God. <laughs> and then he asks for books of memorable deeds to be brought. Okay, was this normal protocol? The king had everything at his disposal. He could have had one of his 400 women. <laughs> he could have had more milk. He could have had somebody sing to him or play for him like Saul did. He, he could have anything. He's the king. And he asks for a book that probably most people would think was boring. And maybe that's the point. Maybe he thought it was boring and it would put him to sleep. I don't know. Okay. But what a strange thing. He can't sleep. 
he gets the idea for this book to be brought. Again, all, every detail orchestrated by God. We, we know this book, it had been mentioned before. Okay, remember in an earlier chapter, Mordecai had saved his life. It had been recorded in the Chronicles of the King. Okay, now he says, go, go get a book of memorable deeds and read to me. And they come in, and this is the exact one they pick and the exact place they go to. Okay? And, and to make that even more astounding, it's called a book. Okay? But when we think of the word book, we think of something called a codex, which is bound pages written on the front and the back. Well, these were not invented until centuries later. These books would have been scrolls on parchment written on one side. We saw in Ruth, there's only one time it's written on both sides, and that's very important, okay? But these scrolls were written on one side. So, no, no bindings. So it's not like they go in and pick the right one with Mordecai on it. You all, it, I, I don't know how these would have been organized, but they probably would have all looked kind of the same. I can't imagine anything else. These things, it, if you've not had a chance, down at our seminary, the Baptist Seminary, um, they actually have a scroll in their library that you can see. It is fascinating. Y'all, these things were huge. I mean, it looked like, the one they have, it looks like it would take two men almost to hold it and read it. But this is what we're dealing with here. So they go in, they pick the exact right scroll, and they happen to unroll it to the exact right place to read this account. So just, just amazing. It was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who had guarded the threshold and had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the king said what honor or distinction had been done, and it was found out that nothing had been done for him. So he anxiously says, who's in the court? He, he's, he wants to take care of this right now. No more time going by without him being honored. And Haman had just entered the court where he was about to talk to the king about having Mordecai hanged. You all look at what is happening here and don't miss the irony. So the king's been up all night reading of Mordecai's heroic act. Haman's up all night building a gallows for Mordecai. The king is excitedly anticipating rewarding this unrewarded hero. Haman is excitedly anticipating the same man's torture, humiliation, and demise. The king asks, who's in the court? And right then, Haman walks in the court. The king wants to speak with one of his courtiers about Mordecai's reward. And Haman wants to speak to the king about Mordecai's death. All at the same moment. All at the same moment. Um, 
Mark Twain, very famous English writer, said these words. Truth is stranger than fiction, but it's because fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities. Truth isn't. Have, have you ever read a novel and it's almost so wacky, so unbelievable, you don't even like it? It's almost like this. Like, really? All these things? Uh, you all, because God, God can orchestrate anything in any way. Matthew nineteen twenty six says, with man, this is impossible. I would say this story we're reading is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Verse 5, the king's young men said, Haman came in. So the king says, what should be done to the man with whom the king delights to honor? And Haman says to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Oh, such arrogance and pride. Oh, my goodness. So what detail he goes into you all it makes me wonder if maybe he has thought about this before maybe he's dreamed about this to be able to come up on such spur of the moment here but listen carefully to his suggestions Haman's not satisfied with any royal apparel he suggests robes the king himself has worn not just any of the royal steeds, a horse on which the king himself had ridden, and to top it off, the crown, the symbol of kingship, of authority, of power. He wants to be the king. this, This is why he is a perfect picture of the Antichrist. He, nothing else... But being God, okay, this is Satan. Nothing, nothing else is good enough. He wants to be God himself. But it gets better. <sighs> Let the robes and the horse be handed to one of the king's most noble officials. That official was going to be him. He was going to be the one. Such great detail here. So the king says, hurry, take the robes and the horse As you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Oh, don't you wish we had more details here? Oh, what? (laughs) what did he do? What was going through his head? So he took the robes and the horse. He dressed Mordecai. And he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Mm. Then Mordecai returns to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. A couple things here. The tables have just been turned, you all. Mm. Esther and Mordecai have been the ones mourning. Now he is mourning. Okay? You all, the traps that people set for others fall upon themselves. 
And then this word hurried, you all hurried is used three times in this chapter alone. Okay, three times. Again, the pace is picking up as the story is unfolding. So Haman tells his wife and his friends everything that has happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh say, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. (sighs) Very different from how they were talking last night. The night before, they were talking with a boldness. Oh, build some gallows and go tell the king to hang it on, almost presuming whatever whatever he said the king was going to do. We have kind of seen that with the king. But still, uh, I don't know, a bravado there. And now now they're saying, oh, if he's a Jew, you're going to fall. Again, I wish, I wish we knew his thoughts right here. So while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried, that's the third time it's used here, to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. You all, things are moving at a lightning speed, and they are going to continue to do so. Um, This storyline, which again had taken generations to prepare for everybody to be in line in the right place, in the right circumstances, for God to miraculously save his people, are lined up exactly, and now everything's going to conclude incredibly fast. So, last connection. Read back through the last few chapters of Esther, watching for specific points of contrast between Haman and Esther. Think about who they each trust, to whom do they each listen, how do they each make decisions, how are each of their attitudes displayed by their actions, and how does each of them approach the king. Okay, There can be others, but those just enough to get you started. And then you all, what can you learn from these contrasts? One of my favorite verses, and I know I've shared this one in here before, is 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. It says, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This was explained this way to me one time, and I've never forgotten it, and it has helped me, and it makes me love to dig into Scripture that used to make no sense to me, and then I'm like, ah, I'll just skip that one. Now I'm like, oh, what is it? Is it supposed to teach me? Is it supposed to reprove me? Is it supposed to train me? Um, But it's just almost like a challenge. So teaching and doctrine, you all, that, that shows us what is right. What are we supposed to be doing? Um, reproof, some of your versions might be rebuke. That means what is not right. You know, we have equal examples in here of people who do things right 
and people who don't, and we need to learn from both. We need to learn from both. Correction, some say correcting, same thing. How do we get it right? It's all in here. You all, If there's something not right, this tells us how to get it right. And then training in righteousness or instruction, how do we keep it right? You all, how do we keep on going? How do we keep on the path that we're supposed to be? So this verse is saying everything in here, you all, we can learn from. Every verse in here we can learn from. It's all breathed from God himself, okay? And the people God chose to tell his redemptive story through, we also learn from, okay? And it is so easy to think of all the heroes And see ourselves or try to see ourselves in only the people in here that are good. And you all, sometimes I know for myself, I can look more like some of the ones that aren't the heroes. We need to learn from both. We need to learn from both. What can we learn from Esther? Some amazing things. But you all, we can learn some very important things from Haman as well. So go through these points of contrast and see what you come up with. Um, because I know for myself, and you, again, you all, the, these are just my personal notes as I'm going through this. And as I'm thinking through this, just thought sometimes we can sound more like grumbling, complaining Israelites than we sound like Moses. Sometimes we can look more like Saul in his disobedience than David in his obedience. Sometimes we can display more the pride of Haman as opposed to the humility of Esther. So what can we learn from each? Let's learn from all so that we can be equipped, you all. This is what makes us perfect. This, this is what gets us on that road, you all. This is what we're supposed to be doing. And then... On your own, since I really didn't give you a study thing this week, since I knew we had two chapters, just think through in these last two chapters, is there any word, any particular word that stuck out to you, because there's a couple I really wanted to do, that you might want to do a word study on. There's some really cool um, topics in here that we've seen that would be worth some study. So... I'm going to pray, and then we have a couple minutes if anybody has a thought or a question. Father God, again, we just thank you and praise you for this night. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book and all that you have for us in it. Father, I pray that all throughout this week, um, bring to our remembrance, Lord, things that you are showing us in your truth. Father God, if there are things in our life that need to be corrected, Lord, I ask that you reveal those things to us. Father, I pray that you show us, Lord, you lead us and guide us moment by moment, step by step. Lord, help us to be women who position ourselves to hear you more clearly. 
I thank you for that, Lord, and I praise you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen.